Overall, I would say a general consensus among parties that they decide that this is something, I understand, that this is something that should not be done with the hope that that will affect their behaviour in future. Now, that traditionally is the way I have understood, nor we can have a discussion in question and answer if that's something that you disagree with, but that's the way that I would, I would come with. Um, and then, as I said, I mean, usually through, through conflict, if you look at the history of the 20th century, most states that are in any kind of conflict will always reach out to find additional ways to prosecute that conflict if they can. The First World War beget the tank, the Second World War beget aircraft, the Cold War nuclear weapons, and now we're into drones and cyber warfare. States tend to reach out for different kinds of technological capabilities if they feel that they need them. And therefore, the question is whether these weapons are to such an extent that every single country has internalized the fact that they're not going to be used, or whether there is a tepid agreement that they shouldn't be used, but it's a political decision, not one that's been fully internalized. And I think the point I, I make for this is if you, if you look at the states around the world that have been the holdouts on these treaties, it's by and large the states that believe that they might still need these weapons for their security. Uh, I won't talk about biological weapons, but if you look at the chemical weapons, con uh, 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 chemical weapons convention, the Israelis have signed but not ratified. They're obviously concerned about a conventional military operation in, in, in the Middle East. The North Koreans have not signed or ratified. They're obviously concerned about the United States and the South Koreans. The Iraqis did not until the post-Saddam era ratify in part because chemical weapons have been quite <coughs> successful in, in, in confronting the Iranians during the Iran-Iraq war. States possess these things or decide they're going to continue to possess these things if they think it's going to be in their interest of security. And therefore, that's partly where I think the pessimism comes from. Even if we have all the states in the world signed up, how substantive a change has this actually been? That's the first point. The second point I'd, I'd make is there is still no agreement on how to respond to the use of these particular weapons. And I know it's recent history and it's probably at the forefront of many people's mind, but I think it's worth going back to the 2012-2013 situation in Syria because I think it raised so many more questions than it did provide answers. And unfortunately, I don't have the answers to those questions. But I think it's worth highlighting what the questions are so we have a, um, a stronger sense of if we're going to start enforcing principles of this kind, the challenges that we're going to get into. So the background to this was about the summer of 2012, August 2012, uh, President Obama was asked at a, at a press conference, this is just when the Syrian conflict was, was gathering full force, whether the US would consider using any military force within Syria to safeguard or extract the chemical weapons that, that were in the country in order to ensure they didn't fall into the wrong hands. And the quote, and I'll, I'll cite it, was, we have communicated in no uncertain terms with every player in the region that using chemical weapons is a red line for us and that there would be enormous consequences if we start seeing movement on the chemical weapons front or the use of chemical weapons. Now, enormous consequences in, in international affairs usually has a very specific meaning. It's the use of military force. Um, it's, that's the kind of thing that is incorporated in, in UN Security Council resolutions, and it's, it's, it's fairly well understood. Now, a year later, in, in April, you start to get localised, very, very small incidents of chemical weapons use that, that most intelligence organisations think uh, attributed to the Syrian regime. And this is somewhat played down uh, by the White House and by the Americans. They say these intelligence assessments are somewhat questionable. Um, but then in August, almost uh, literally a day and a year, uh, a year and a day, forgive me, um, after President Obama's made his statement, we have a very, very large chemical weapons attack in, in a suburb of Damascus. 1,500 people are killed. And then, although there are lingering questions of, of who was responsible, whether the Assad regime itself was 
was responsible or whether maybe the rebels themselves had got, got control of some of this material <coughs> and used it. That, in, in defense terms, usually is not necessarily a tremendous issue because when it comes to weapons of mass destruction, whether it's nuclear, whether it's chemical, whether it's biological, whether it's radiological, most governments generally agree on the principle that if you are a state that possesses those weapons, you are responsible for them, even if you lose control of them. And therefore, the ultimate buck stops with you, and if you're not the person who authorized their use, you've lost possession and control, and you sacrifice responsibility on that. So I think that the wheels for, for, for military action started to turn. The United States started to prepare military options to, to go and eliminate either the forces that have used these chemicals or eliminate the chemicals themselves. You'll probably recall the UK Parliament here had a vote as now mandated after Iraq on, on using military force, which is obviously defeated. Uh, the Americans continue to go forward. Kerry, Secretary of State John Kerry, gives a very impassioned speech about responding to, to chemical weapons use and the need to reinforce the norm and eventually steps outside the boundaries of the norm and to be a very swift punishment for doing so. And the French are signed up. There's a readiness to go ahead. And the very last minute President Obama thinks that this is actually not a good idea to go in and use military force, decides that he's not prepared to do so without the support of the US Congress, goes to Congress and, and puts forward an authorization request for congressional authorization to use military force, which looks like it's going to be defeated. And the Russians, who didn't want Assad to fall in the first place, see an opportunity and propose uh, an OPCW mission uh, to go into Syria and extract the weapons in agreement with the Syrian authorities, which Assad signs up to, the Russians sign up to, and ultimately Americans sign up to as so a face-saving way to solve this issue without necessarily having to go to war. Now, I raise all this and I go through the history because I just want to point out the level of complexity and the challenges of all this. And I think this literally comes back to the question of the norm, and it needs to be a discussion because that's ultimately what we're talking about. First question, if a norm has to be reinforced with the use of military force, is it really a norm? If the whole point of a norm is that everybody agrees on behavior and agrees to be self-restrained, you shouldn't need one country with a vast military to go around beating up on all those countries that break the norm. The second question is, what do you do with the, and there will always be some recalcitrant states that don't want to sign up. If you say, well, Syria should be held accountable for using chemical weapons, but Syria never signed the Chemical Weapons Convention. It was one of the few states that didn't. So from where do you find the legitimacy to punish the one state that's decided it's not going to be bound by a treaty? You're going to punish it for not signing the treaty in the first place. That takes you on a very slippery slope. The third point I'd make, and this comes more from my training on, on discussing nuclear issues, is there are usually established two forms of deterrence. The first is deterrence by denial do not do this, or there will be very nasty consequences if you do. And this is the traditional theories of mutually assured destruction from nuclear weapons. The second one is what's often referred to as deterrence by punishment. If you have done this nasty thing, even though we told you not to, now we have to retaliate. And traditionally, you have to retaliate disproportionately to make the state in question know it should never be doing this again in the future. If it's just a slap on the wrist, there needs to be a stronger response to the action that was done therefore to deter it from ever doing it again in the future. Well, are you going to then go to war with the Assad regime in its entirety and try to have regime change in Syria just on the basis of a few instances of chemical weapons use? Which then brings you to the fourth question, which is President Obama, very commendably in my view, has spent the most of his presidency trying to extract the United States from military conflicts in the Middle East. Are you going to subvert that entire agenda to try to respond to a red line on chemical weapons. Now, my, my guess at the time was he set up the red line to 
to establish such a high threshold for the use of military force that he would never be called upon to do so because my read of him is that he doesn't want America to continue to have to intervene militarily in the Middle East. But then the question is, once Assad has responded and, and, and gone with chemical weapons even though it was warned not to, you're boxed in firstly to your own rhetoric saying you would do something in response, but secondly by your broader policy initiative of we do not want to continue to be sucked into military conflicts. Which of those is on balance the more preferable option because you can't have both? Um, and then I come to the final question which, which confronts all arms control advocates, which is, and I wrestled with this and I'm not entirely sure what the answer is and I'm sure lots of other people have thought about it as well, does the kind of weapon that's used in a conflict actually really matter? If we're going to intervene, as was the discussion in Syria, and this was part of the parliamentary debate we had here in the UK, if we're going to intervene in Syria and spend enormous military capital, diplomatic capital, financial capital, ethical, moral capital to go and, and use military force, is that a price worth paying when the probable net result of all of our actions will be that the Assad regime just continues to kill its people with conventional weapons rather than chemical weapons? Have we really made enough of a difference to warrant responding in the way that we were considering? Now, my personal view is that we shouldn't have drawn a red line in the first place because there was no military solution to eliminate serious chemical weapons. And actually, the ugly, messy compromise that resulted afterwards was with the OPCW going into Syria actually proved ultimately much more effective in taking the chemical weapons out of Syria. Now, you can make the case that the threat of military force was the only thing that got us to that point in the first place. But I want to point out that those are the kinds of challenges you have to face when you're discussing how to enforce these general principles on which we're all trying to agree as an international community. And they're very hard. There is no right or wrong answer to any of those challenges that I just put before you. Uh, and therefore, then I come back to the point of the question of why are we discussing the threat of chemical and biological weapons use? Because there is still the prospect, having seen the Syria escapade, that future states might think they can get away with it as well. Because actually, the consequences for Assad were not that severe. You have to let some inspectors into the country, you have to join the Chemical Weapons Convention, and you have to surrender your chemical weapons. Not a tremendous punishment for potentially the advantage he gained from using them in the first place. So I'm concerned about the fact that even though these principles are agreed internationally, doesn't necessarily mean that we have the solution. If, if our broader goal is, is to ensure that we have the total elimination of these weapons, we need to have an idea of how we're going to respond when there isn't agreement, when you have the exception that proves the rule. And right now we don't have that. And then the final point I'll, I'll talk about is non-state actors, because as I mentioned, um, having uh, all the state signatories in the world is not going to solve the problem. And in my perspective, from my from where I sit, I think the fundamental challenge for this century is not going to be states and grand conventional armies using chemical weapons on the battlefield. I think it's going to be non-state actors and terrorist organizations who try to gain control of these kinds of material. Uh, and it's very helpful to have the majority of the countries signed up that they shouldn't possess or, or use these weapons. But no matter how much you safeguard at the state level, either for, from use of, of repressive regimes or, 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 or states at war, you still have the challenge of, of preventing fanatical individuals or terrorist organizations from gaining control of these materials and using them. Uh, and to use an economic term, the barriers to entry of using these kinds of weapons, in my perspective, is low and falling. Uh, firstly, the incentives to use them is growing. The opportunity to gain possession of them is not as difficult as it should be, from my perspective. And the expertise needed to weaponize them, I actually deploy them militarily once you've gotten hold of them, is growing. Uh, um, 
so, so the expertise needed is, is lowering the sense of it's easy to gain that expertise. The likelihood of weaponization is growing. The level of knowledge and the difficulty of gaining the knowledge to weaponize is, is reducing. So on the first uh, hand, we see internationally that terrorist groups are increasingly going to ever further lengths to capture public attention. Um, before 9-11, most uh, analysts of terrorists wanted to work. I can't remember the name of the author, but I can supply the quote if you'd like, which is, terrorists want a lot of people watching, not a lot of people dead. We always have to remember that groups like ISIS, groups like Boko Haram, these are partly terrorist groups, but they are also partly involved in a public relations activity. They are trying to recruit followers. They are trying to identify themselves with a brand, with a particular objective, with a particular modus operandi. And one of the ways to do that is to capture the world's public attention. One of the ways is executing people on television. One of the ways is kidnapping girls out of schools. This captures the world's attention. You have a competition between groups to go to ever further lengths to capture the attention of the international world media. And therefore, one of the ideal ways of doing so is resorting to chemical or biological weapons that the world has said are off limits and no one is going to use. If no one is using them, then if you use them, you are suddenly an exception and you are heralded around the world as a tremendously nasty terrorist group, which will bring you into significant hot water with a lot of Western governments, but it will also attract a certain kind of individual. Um, on the second point, the proliferation of material, I find very, very particularly concerning. Um, and this particularly so in the developing world where you see enormous technological leaps without the attendant improvements in security and safety that you would hope would attend those advances. So the facilities where a lot of the material is kept are not as secure as you would want them to be. And I'll come back to that right at the end where finally I do have some positive news. Um, and on the final point uh, with regard to weaponization, again, you don't need that much. Um, having rudimentary biological training or chemical training will probably give you enough material and enough knowledge to be able to go out and conduct an attack if you've gained control of the material itself. And um, you probably shouldn't do so given the new rules that Theresa May is introducing, but if you, were to, if you were to Google how to conduct a sarin gas attack, how to conduct a crawling <laughs> attack on the internet, as I did so before this presentation, so if you see me hold away in cuffs, you're in the wire, um, you'd be concerned by how much information is available in the public domain. And therefore, the point that I come back to is my concern is that all of these trends will overlap and congeal into one, and that we will face many more attacks not at the state level, but at the sub-state level, using these kinds of weapons in the future. So as I mentioned that there's going to be some good news, so finally on to the good news. Um, of those three things, the incentives are growing, the proliferation of knowledge and expertise is growing. In terms of the actual material, because so many states are signed up to these treaties of not possessing such weapons, it's quite limited. Now, I do a lot of work at RUSI on radiological material, which unfortunately is, is a much bleaker picture because you have radiological departments at hospitals where a lot of this material is stored, but it's not necessarily stored tremendously securely. And we run a project in South Asia where essentially we provide training to local staff, government regulators, hospital staff, security officers at facility, to, to educate them in the kind of questions they should be asking, such as, are there good internal security procedures at your facility? Does one person have overall responsibility for the dangerous material in question? How is it stored? How is its transportation reported? Is there a culture of people reporting up if they see somebody suspiciously hanging around, or does no one seek to question their superior? And above all, is it stored in a way that enables those with responsibility for seeing who else accessed it? 
you would hope you would pass through a series of doors to a final room at the end of the corridor, and you have to go through the outer office of the responsible officer. You'd be amazed by how many times that's not true, that you can physically get to the door of the place where the thing is stored without ever passing by anybody who knows anything about it. Um, those are fairly basic, fairly routine procedures, but we've had delegations over from, from South Asian countries here who look at UK procedures and smile and say, yes, but that's clearly just been put on for our visit. That's surely not how you do things. And having staff from the Environment Agency and, and from, from Lucy and from other organisations, medical, you know, nuclear medicine scientists saying, no, that really is how we, how we protect it on a day-to-day -day basis. So seeing that is, is somewhat concerning, but I come back to the point, which is the best way that you can prevent any kind of use of this kind of material in the future, and yes, we can talk about states, yes, we can talk about deterring states, but I think the fundamental question is on the lower level of this material getting out and being used. The best way to prevent it you will never stop the incentives for terrorists using it. You can't close the internet and deprive people of the knowledge of how to use it. The best way of focusing on it is to physically secure the material itself because there's not that much of it. Um, biologically, chemically, radiologically, is, is much higher. Which finally brings me around <coughs> to the point, as talking to a conference of people who work in the healthcare industries, this is something to be very, very aware of because a lot of health facilities contain a lot of this material and you wouldn't necessarily think of yourself as working at a facility that's fundamental for defence and security, it actually may just be, uh, and therefore it's worth having a think about the security procedures and whether they're rigorous enough. So I'll leave it there and then hopefully I can answer your questions uh, if you have any. Excellent, thank you very much. Thanks very much, uh, Simon, and thank you also to uh, Chris Venables and uh, the MedEx team. Um, it's a very worthwhile uh, event you're holding here, uh, and it's a great honour to be invited to, to, to join you. Um, uh, despite my accent, I haven't come from as far away as you think I might have. Um, only uh, West Wales, so that in itself was, was quite a journey. Um, I'm not normally the kind of person who um, acquiesces in the bunching together of chemical weapons with biological weapons as a subject for analysis. In fact, I've built the better part of my academic career by insisting that biological weapons ought to be treated separately, and of course that they are both more interesting and more important uh, as, a, as, a, uh, as a security risk. Uh, but I will graciously condescend to uh, address my remarks in some measure towards chemical weapons as well. Um, and I'm going to do that on the theme of dangerous ambiguities. Ambiguities that we can see with regard not only to the application of technology, be it chemical or biological technology, but also ambiguities uh, with regard to the application of the law, be the domestic or international arms control law. Ambiguities which are dangerous because they carry the potential for states or individuals to cheat on or break out from uh, the legal regimes that are supposed to control chemical weapons and others that control biological weapons. However, there is at least one thing uh, that these two very distinct types of risk uh, have in common, uh, which is important to acknowledge from the outset, uh, especially for the purposes of an event which is concerned with um, uh, humanitarian 
um, projects and issues. And one of the most important elements of international humanitarian law um, is the first additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions, opened for signature in 1977, um, shortly after at the end of the Vietnam War, when um, states in general decided it was time to have another good, hard look at the way that we govern uh, violence in international affairs. And Article 51 of the First Additional Protocol provides, as you see there, um, the legal embodiment of a centuries-old um, principle, which is also a principle of customary international law, the principle of discrimination. There should be discrimination as between combatants and non-combatants in the fighting of war. So there the highlighted text shows that there is a prohibition as a matter of treaty and customary international law against indiscriminate attacks. And the definition of that includes the use of methods or means which are of a nature to strike military objectives and civilians without distinction. And this is what chemical weapons and biological weapons do have in common that it is in their very nature that they are offensive to the, dis to the distinction or the discrimination principle. We can also approach both types of weapons with an international humanitarian law mindset by saying that they also could offend the principle of proportionality, that principle that we should only use as much force, assuming force is justified in the first place, that we should only use as much force as is necessary to achieve a legitimate military objective of sufficient value. And then all the ethicists and lawyers will argue about what is sufficient, what is valuable, uh, and so on and so forth, what is necessary. But when people talk about the proportionality principle, they will also talk about such things as superfluous injury and unnecessary suffering, with the implication, of course, that there is such a thing legally as sufficient in injury and necessary suffering. Be that as it may, there is a concern about the superfluous injury and also the, the, the horrific nature of the injuries that are sustained if someone is subjected either to a chemical or a biological attack. And a concern that is quite deeply felt that this is a bad way to die. It does seem at times arbitrary that we only outlaw certain ways of killing people. And yet those rules must reflect some kind of societal sensibility that killing people in some ways is worse than killing them in, other, in others. For example, because uh, it is more painful, or because it takes longer to die, or because it is particularly spectacularly grotesque in the execution of that kind of uh, attack. Arbitrary or not, these taboos about certain forms of killing do exist. A, a taboo against the use of poisons in war as an uncivilised way of killing people, and also, there is the age-old stigma that attaches to infection. The diseased are shunned. So there's the taboo surrounding poison and the stigma surrounding disease. Beyond that, I, I don't want to harp on any further about what biological and chemical weapons have in common. They really ought to be considered separately. So first, um, briefly, because um, Tim has already ably um, covered a great deal of this territory, chemical weapons, which are not, incidentally, weapons of mass destruction as could possibly be compared to nuclear weapons in terms of their destructive capability. And, by the by, they are also not readily compared to biological weapons because, for example, you cannot catch poisoning from someone else. Okay. 
Just to briefly give you a rundown on the types of chemical agents that have been or could be used for attack purposes, falling into these five broad categories. First of all, blister agents, which are um, usually deliberately used not to kill, but to create sort of medical problems. Um, there was a report from earlier this month on BBC of uh, mustard, sometimes known as mustard gas, being used uh, in the town of Marea in northern Syria. Used by whom exactly? Uh, uh, it, it is not certain. But this kind of agent will cause um, uh, inflammation of mucous membranes, um, blistering on the skin, um, certainly severe irritation. A more deadly proposition are your blood agents, anything involving cyanide, uh, that compromises the ability of the body to, to absorb oxygen and causes tissue damage. Choking agents are the oldest form of chemical agent used in war. Chlorine and phosgene, both used uh, in the First World War, um, basically causing the lungs to fill with fluid and you, you, you drown as a result. Nerve agents relatively new, although they date from the 30s, with improved nerve agents arising uh, in the 1950s, which essentially um, cause uh, paralysis of the respiratory system. Uh, and, and rapid death, and they are highly toxic, very low doses uh, of exposure to nerve agents, such as sarin, uh, can be deadly. And sarin was the, the, the nerve agent allegedly used uh, in August of 2013, perhaps by Assad's forces, perhaps not, um, but they are considered to be the most powerful of chemical agents. And then the, the category that I'm going to be focusing on, which I regard as uh, something of a, of a loophole in the chemical weapons uh, international control regime, which concerns incapacitating agents, so-called. And I've provided the example of tear gas, which might be perhaps the most familiar to people who live in London and who are students. <laughs> but tear gas, tear gas is the mildest of so-called incapacitating agents. And there's been a great deal of concern about other forms of chemical agents which are supposedly only intended to incapacitate rather than kill an adversary, potentially for crowd control reasons, potentially for warfare reasons. The kinds of chemicals which aren't just about um, causing your eyes to flare up, but rather to cause changes in your mood. Substances that are based on quite good advanced, advanced understandings of neuroscience and the way in which um, uh, chemicals can affect uh, the functioning of of, uh, of how you feel, how, whether you feel aggressive, uh, whether you feel tired, whether you feel hungry. But more on that a little bit later on, because this is all under the broad uh, umbrella of weapons that are sometimes referred to as non-lethal. Now this is just a web page shot uh, from the US Department of Defense, which runs since about the late 1990s, a non-lethal weapons program, which has a chemical uh, element to it, and here the picture illustrates the very individualized application of um, CS, uh, sorry, OC, oloresium capsicum, which is just your classic um, tear gas type substance. But who's to say that substances like this are only to be distributed on an individualized basis? The greater concern is for the mass dissemination of so-called non-lethal incapacitating chemical agents. A problem potentially uh, for the Chemical Weapons Convention, which bans the use of chemical weapons uh, in war, at least since 1997. The convention was opened for signature in 1993, and these provisions that are most relevant to what I want to talk about, and you'll see in glorious international law style, 
the prohibition on the use of chemical agents in war is subject to a triple negative. So I'll just take you through these articles ever so quickly one by one. States signed up to this convention undertake never to use chemical weapons. Chemical weapons are defined to include toxic chemicals except where intended for purposes not prohibited as long as the types and quantities of those toxic chemicals are consistent with those non-prohibited purposes. And then there's the definition of a toxic chemical which talks about action on life processes causing death, incapacitation, permanent harm. Article 2.9 is the stuff of much discussion around the sidelines of, of meetings of members of the Chemical Weapons Convention, but remains unchanged since the original drafting of the Convention. And it provides that one of the purposes that is not prohibited under the Convention is law enforcement, including domestic riot control purposes. So I'll just quickly take you through the triple negative, which is lovely for legal drafting. Um, never is the first, not is the second, and prohibited is the third negative. So I'll translate for you. The Chemical Weapons Convention says you may use toxic chemicals for law enforcement purposes. This includes, but is not limited to, domestic riot control purposes. Now, it has been interpreted, again, offline and not in official Chemical Weapons Convention texts, to say that law enforcement also includes capital punishment, so that lethal injections in the United States and other jurisdictions can go ahead without uh, violating the Chemical Weapons Convention. But, other than that, this particular provision has gone uninterpreted, on a consensus basis, that is. Certain countries, including Canada, Switzerland, <coughs> this country, and non-government organisations such as the International Committee of the Red Cross, are desperately unhappy with Article 2.9 of the Convention, because the Convention does not tell us what counts as law enforcement, and it does not tell us what types of toxic chemicals used in particular quantities are and are not consistent with a law enforcement purpose. And for as long as there is doubt, ambiguity about whether a particular use of force is law enforcement or warfare, toxic chemicals could be used. This is dangerous in terms of undermining the norm against chemical weapons use and certainly undermining um, political commitment to the Chemical Weapons Convention. And let me take you through exactly how this difficulty manifests with a real-life example, which, if it happened again, would still attract the same non-answer from the Chemical Weapons Convention as it is currently interpreted. Something that happened 13 years ago in Moscow. 800 theatre-goers um, filed into a uh, large theatre space uh, in northern Moscow and were promptly followed by 41 armed Chechens uh, who took all those theatre-goers hostage and demanded uh, the immediate uh, freeing of Chechnya from the yoke of, of Russian power, uh, including black widows, so-called because their husbands had been killed um, by, by uh, Russians in the fighting over Chechnya. The siege that ensued lasted 54 hours, and the Russian special forces ultimately responded by pumping into that vast space, larger than the light theatre, um, a substance which was probably uh, fentanyl-based, which is a very powerful anaesthesia, usually used for veterinary purposes. And it had the, 
desired effect of knocking out absolutely everybody inside the theatre, both theatre goers and the hostage takers. Whereupon, and you'll see the image here, these are Russian special forces in their camouflaged gear. Um, the hostage takers uh, were removed, and many of them were then placed under medical care outside the theatre, and the Chechens were summarily executed in their seats where they lay. Was this law enforcement, or was this warfare? The Russians claimed, of course, that this was law enforcement. And yet the optics of this were decidedly warlike. The use of special forces in uniform, summer execution rather than placing people on trial. On the other hand, this particular response gained a great deal of support from those who said this was, on the whole, a good news story. Because despite the fact that over a hundred of the hostages died because of their exposure to this powerful anaesthetic, nearly 700 survived the experience. And therefore, on the whole, it was a good news story. Certainly, it could have been worse. But it was a problem in terms of international law because the Russians were able to get away with calling this law enforcement. The difficulty with incapacitating agents is that they could be um, an easy and fast way into the use of chemical, use of toxic chemicals for, if you like, real warfare purposes. Because if you have the capability to pump a large quantity of fentanyl or something else into a large space, who's to say that next time you won't be filling up that uh, dissemination device with something that is even more toxic and you're using it in a, in, a, in a real life hot fighting war. Being in a position to wage large scale incapacitant based law enforcement is arguably putting yourself in a position also to wage chemical warfare. The intention of the Chemical Weapons Convention was that states who signed up to it would be committing to exclude completely the possibility of the use of chemical weapons. And yet, while ever this ambiguity remains as regards what counts as law enforcement in terms of the use of toxic chemicals, there is an increased possibility of chemical weapons being used um, in a traditional warlike sense. But enough of that, on to germs, <laughs> which is much, much closer to my heart. Now, not just any old germs. Um, plenty of things make us sick, but certain things make us very sick and can kill us, are hard to treat or impossible to treat, and some germs are the subject of concern by some governments because they think that they could be used in some kind of attack. So here's a quick list of some of the usual suspects, and you'll see close to the top of the left-hand column um, a, a, a familiar cast member, Ebola virus. You'll see the causative biological agents for tularemia, which is very similar to plague. And of course, further down the list, actual plague, the Black Death, caused by a bacteria. Smallpox, which was eradicated in the late 1970s, but nevertheless exists in uh, secure laboratories, so it is not gone uh, forever. And the, uh, if you like, the, the standard Vauxhall model uh, biological agent down the list there, Bacillus anthracis, a bacteria which causes anthrax. Now, these particular agents are on this list, which is an American list, because of American government concern that they might be used in a biological attack. In particular, that they might be used by an American scientist or a scientist working inside a laboratory inside the United States. And why do they think that? Well, because 
In 2008, the FBI made an allegation that the anthrax attacks that occurred in 2001, and you'll see samples of the envelopes on the right there, they were perpetrated not by Al-Qaeda or some known terrorist group on the, already on the radar of intelligence agencies, but they were perpetrated by someone from within the US defense establishment, a microbiologist called Bruce Ivins, who had worked for the US Army for 28 years and who had received their highest civilian honor and who wielded a top secret security clearance. And this list refers to um, agents, biological agents, which are controlled based on physical, um, physical regulations and personnel-based checks to ensure that other Bruce Ivanses, assuming that this man did in fact perpetrate those attacks, uh, do not act as scientist bioterrorists again in the future. Um, in the question and answer period, I might have something to say, if anyone else is interested, on this issue of whether or not bioterrorism is easy to carry out. But for now, I think it's important that we acknowledge that there are such things as states, and that in general, the threat that states pose is greater than the threat that non-state actors pose. And states are those <coughs> entities that are bound by the Biological Weapons Convention. And there's an element of ambiguity in this piece of international law as well. And any of you who have studied international law will be familiar with ambiguity. Sometimes you can't get sufficient numbers of countries signing up to a given treaty unless there is a good <coughs> amount of ambiguity in it. But the ambiguity in Article 1 of the BWC <coughs> is that there is a prohibition on the development, production, acquisition, or retaining of biological agents of types and in quantities that have no justification for prophylactic, protective, or peaceful purposes. <coughs> Which is to say there is a great deal of work that is done in laboratories all over the world with biological agents for peaceful purposes. The production or development of antibiotics, antivirals, vaccines, the kind of work that vitally informs clinical work to treat infectious diseases. All this goes on but that is not supposed to be touched by the ban on biological weapons. <coughs> Only work that does not have a peaceful purpose is supposed to be touched. And that is something that concerns states. And you'll notice that in the second provision of this article of the BWC, there's another kind of rule, a rule against the production and possession of means of delivery that are designed to use biological agents for hostile purposes or in armed conflict. Designed. And international lawyers will insist, especially those who draft international laws, that word choice is very important. The word designed was used, not the word intended. Which means that that provision of the Biological Weapons Convention could be interpreted to mean that this is referring to means of delivery, biological dissemination devices that are designed for a hostile purpose, even if they are not intended for that purpose. In the same way that you can intend to use a rifle for the peaceful purpose of testing the strength of a bulletproof vest, but of course the rifle is not designed for that purpose. A rifle is designed to propel a bullet at high speed out of its barrel and cause an immense amount of damage and usually kill um, the person or animal that it hits. 
That is what it is all about uh, in terms of the engineering of it. So let's consider, I, I had something bad to say about the Russians earlier on in respect of chemical weapons. It's only fair that I share the love. Let's turn our minds now to the Americans. The Americans conduct large-scale outdoor testing of substances that simulate real biological warfare agents. This is done at the Dugway Proving Ground and a couple of other facilities in the United States. And let me tell you, let me give you an example of one of the tests um, that was run a few years back. This was a test, ostensibly, and probably actually, um, to see if the joint biological standoff detection system would work against a real biological attack. The test involved, and I'm now quoting, dry killed vaccine strain of anthrax, wet killed vaccine strain of uh, plague bacteria, end quote. The trial then includes dissemination late at night, which is understood as the ideal time to carry out mass biological attacks, a dissemination involving 20 grams of that dry anthrax simulant at a target range of 1.2 kilometres, and the dissemination of 3.5 litres of plague simulant at a target range of 7 kilometres. Now, it, they weren't real germs being used in, in those delivery systems. And I'd even go so far as to say that the Americans probably really were only doing this for protective defensive purposes to test the capabilities of their defensive systems. But the question needs to be asked, if an identical activity were going on in Russia or Iran or China, would the US government, or for that matter the UK government, regard that activity as non-threatening? And I, I suggest that no, they would not. And in the same way, the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians are not going to regard the things going on at Dugway Proving Ground as non-threatening, even if they are, in fact, non-threatening. And this is the dangerous ambiguity. And the problem that exists with regard to the Biological Weapons Convention that does not exist with regards to the Chemical Weapons Convention is that there is no way, there is no mechanism for sending in an international team of inspectors to go to Dugway and take a look at exactly what is going on and satisfy themselves that this activity really does have a peaceful purpose. It is important because, again, with the BWC, the intention has been for states that sign up to this rule to exclude completely the possibility of biological agents being used as weapons. But if you've brought yourself to the position where you can disseminate biological agents over several kilometres in large quantities in a way that intentionally replicates a real biological attack, if you have all the equipment that lets you do that, you are just a tiny step away, that step being a change of mind, a tiny step away from being able to carry out a real biological attack on a large scale. And that is not at all in the spirit of a convention which is supposed to exclude completely the possibility of biological attacks. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Christian. There's an awful lot from 
Yeah, sure. Awful lot in, of excellent information for both speakers. We've got a good, um, good amount of time left. We've got just over half an hour, so happy to take questions from the floor. Please make the most of the expertise and the opinions that are sitting in front of you up here. Um, maybe we'll take a couple of questions at a time and do as many rounds as, as we need to do. So please make yourself known if you have a question. Yes, sir. If you could also tell us who you are. Yeah. My name is Peter Tell. I am the founder and international director of Faculty of Discussionists at Virginia Park, recently launched. I'm a former microbiologist and still work in NHS, and my interest has been special, especially in infectious diseases. And in terms of this kind of biological weapons, early 90s, when I was working at the University of Birmingham, I was part of an informal group set up by Foreign Commons Office on biology and chemical you know, weapons and potential of transfer technology to developing countries. So I did some work on that one. Um, my, there are two questions. One is actually, as far as biological weapons are concerned, to us, they are of very limited value in terms of military warfare. They're mostly for terror, okay? And chemical weapons, Again, they are so easy to obtain with the way it, you know, a large number of countries are developing agriculture industries and potential of that. In terms of the conventions, it makes a little difference because there are independent resources. Why go to chemical weapons destruction when you can actually target the chemical industries? Okay? So that's where the security is required. But I'm coming from the other side, I actually uh, work on training and developing clinical capacity in developing countries for disaster medicine. And I would like to see more focus on people to assess the risk assessment and develop the clinical capacity out there in developing countries which they do not have, which will include natural disasters as well as violence and chemical. Uh, weapons. You know, I don't want to go into debate about what Americans did. You have that information. We have it, including ecological warfare and what they had. Uh, everybody is going to sort of try and bend the rules somewhere. Okay, and you know, EDI, Little Data Interchange, came in the 90s for transfer technology, and even then we went ahead to Iraq and said, sorry, you got weapons of mass destruction, but every possible information showed they couldn't possibly have it because nobody sold it to them. Okay, so actually help with medical management of disasters, particularly through conflict, uh, particularly used by terrorists. Okay, thank you. We'll take one more question. No, well, while you think about it. Oh, no, sorry, there's one there. There's one. Um, I'm Iman, I'm a medical student. Um, thanks so much for the speeches, they're really thought-provoking. And this one's for Chris. Um, you mentioned chemical weapons that could be used potentially to control mood. Could you talk a bit more about that and when you, and how far in the future they could maybe be used and what context and things like that? Thanks. Great, so I think there's something for both speakers there. Should we take, take the order in which yeah. you I'll just pick up on one particular point, which was the disaster relief question, because I think that's particularly uh, interesting. Um, I mentioned at the end that the work that we're doing in South Asia, and the, the, the point that it triggered in my mind was, was the work we've done with India. Because if you look at India's services in this regard, National Disaster Management Agency, NDMA, and, and other organisations of that kind, most of their focus is on natural disaster relief. 
most of their focus is on cleaning up an incident after it's happened, not with preventing it from happening in the first place. Uh, that makes it quite tricky when you're trying to, because natural disasters happen, therefore if that's the problem, then you'll have more experience dealing with things that have happened and less experience with dealing with things that might happen. Uh, their risk assessment is simply different. Um, so that's, firstly that's a problem when you're trying to, to have more of a preventive posture to make sure that no one's getting hold of these weapons. Are these, these chemicals, biological agents. The other point that I've made is, is also on the capacity of building issue. Uh, one of the things that there is in this country is every single place in this country where there is a radiological uh, source, whether it's a hospital, whether it's a scientific facility or anything else, it is maintained in a risk register by the Environment Agency. So if there's a fire, if there's a natural disaster, before the emergency services get there, they know they're going to be dealing with hazardous materials. That's not true in India. So you can have situations with mudslides, building collapses, fires, and not only do the emergency services arrive not knowing that they're dealing with radiological material, they also have no schematic to know where in the building this material is or what it looks like. So that's the kind of capacity building that we're going to need to focus on in the coming years, and that's as best as I can say. Now, um, one of the people that couldn't join us today was Malcolm Dando, um, who is Britain's foremost expert on um, <coughs> uh, neurobiology and its implications for the templates and biological weapons conventions. Um, who could answer your question so much better than I can. <laughs> uh, but what I can do is I can refer to something that Malcolm once wrote. Um, and he unearthed some experiments that were taking place, this was maybe 2009, um, at Charles University in Prague, Czech Republic. Um, Experiments involving um, macaques, monkeys, that resulted in, um, when, when, when these macaques were exposed to these particular chemicals, there was a big drop off in the aggressiveness of their behavior. At least that's what the, uh, the scientists found. Uh, on the basis of those results, they were then able to go on and use some human volunteers uh, to be exposed to aerosolized chemical agent. Um, and this also apparently showed a reduction in um, levels of aggression. Um, as regards to science, I'm a political scientist, which means I'm not a scientist. <laughs> um, so I can only refer you to Malcolm and the excellent work that is done at the University of Bradford on non-lethal weapons in general. Could I make the point, though, because you've been kind enough uh, to raise this issue, that the question has to be asked, when, when things, and these, that's, these chemicals are called calmatives, typically. When people talk about using calmatives, and whether it's for law enforcement or, or perhaps because they think that calmatives ought to be available in wartime, as a preferable alternative to lethal force, as a, as a way of neutralizing an adversary, we need to be confident that they are truly being used for a, a process that is entirely non-lethal, rather than merely pre-lethal, you know what I'm saying? Because history shows, both in um, the conflict in Somalia in the mid-90s and in Vietnam in the 60s and 70s, that so-called non-lethal weapons were used as a prelude to the use of lethal weapons, not in place of lethal weapons. And the classic example from the Vietnam era of, was where um, T-34 
tear gas was used to flush out Viet Cong fighters from their various holes and tunnels in the jungles of South Vietnam, not as an alternative to shooting them, they could not be shot while in the tunnels. These non-lethal chemicals were used so that the now exposed and highly irritated Viet Cong fighters could then be uh, shelled with artillery and bombed uh, from the air. So when, when people ever advocate the use of non-lethal weapons of any kind in war, and I include blinding lasers, and that's a whole different conversation, ask whether the entirety of the circumstance is truly non-lethal, or whether these so-called non-lethal weapons are merely pre-lethal. Excellent. Thank you. Anybody else? Okay, just one, oh, yeah, one here, please. I can just, I think I can just ask. Yeah, I'm just worried whether the people in the back will be able to. Can you guys hear me as I speak at the back? There's a microphone on its way. Hi, um, my name is Margo, I'm a post-grad student, and my question is for Tim specifically. Um, so you mentioned that the best way to deal with weapons of mass destruction is to secure the material that could be used um, to make them and weaponize them. So I'm just wondering, in the case of chemical weapons, for example, how can we make sure that that happens in the case of states that aren't signatories to the treaties? So is it feasible to kind of go into those countries and secure the material? Is that the possibility? Thank you. Great. Is there another one we can take? Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Helen. Uh, I was wondering about the chemical and like uh, nuclear research. Um, should we actually stop the research? Or should we, like everything about uh, biological weapons, should we stop researching these kind of gas since we know they can be used for good and bad purposes? Okay, let's take those two. Yeah, I mean, the first one goes back to the extraordinary problematic of the question of how do you get a country to do something you, it doesn't want to do and you do want it to do. Uh, the countries in question are North Korea, Israel, Egypt, and one other, I have to check which one is. Um, in the question of Israel, I mean, for, for political realities, the United States isn't going to do that. Uh, in the question of North Korea, for even more strategic reasons the United States isn't going to do that. Um, so I mean the problem is you're down to the very last few cases and the same would be for true of, of nuclear weapons, you know, the, the countries that are not party to the non-proliferation treaty but have nuclear weapons are India, Pakistan, North Korea, Israel, the last few holdouts who, who tend to maintain these weapons for very, very specific reasons. So it would be extraordinarily difficult. Um, I think that the point that I would make is when an opportunity does arise, see it. Uh, so in the case of, of Syria there was you know, I went through the, the sort of you know the recent history of how we ended up with the compromise that we got. There was an enormous part of the story that then came after that that was entirely under the radar because it was no longer military force. People were losing interest of the U.S. sending military ships out to the Persian Gulf to fly this material on and to put it in specialist ships. Um, are we off the record? I was in Washington last week talking to someone who was making the point that the US was halfway through this process and realized that the ship that they'd taken out there was not big enough to put the material on they needed and made a rather panicked phone call through to London saying, can you provide another ship which washed out there to be able to do this and was ready when it was done. I mean, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes to, to safeguard this material. Um, the other point that I'd make, particularly when it's chemical and biological, is Okay, it's great if we get the opportunity. For example, hypothetically, there is complete state collapse in North Korea, and you have some kind of multinational UN force that goes in to take out the nuclear weapons, take out the chemical biological agents. You will very quickly run into, I'm going to put it, the same kind of problems you have with migrants and refugees. We don't want that material in our country. 
we don't want that material down the street from us in the facility of the waste management thing buried underground because our kids go to school, you know, going to kilometer down the road. So I suppose my point is that the opportunities are few and far between. The best you can do is to prepare yourself to be able to respond when an opportunity comes up by having the infrastructure necessary because the worst possible development would be an opportunity comes up and we prove that we don't actually have the capability to be able to take it. Um, I suppose that's probably as good an answer as I can give. Should we stop the research? Um, I think we should never stop asking that question, which is to say we should always be asking whether the benefits we expect to derive from particular lines of research do or are likely to outweigh the associated risks of conducting it. Um, and that's not going to be sort of a fixed answer and then you sort of move on. You, you constantly have to be inquiring into that uh, question. Now, it may be that the things that I have referred to as calmatives, uh, in addition to attracting the attention of military planners, also attract the attention of perhaps clinical psychologists, other clinicians who see a therapeutic application of a given technology. And if, and, and you'd have to do this on a case by case, and if you look at a particular technology and you can say quite reasonably that, well, the therapeutic applications are, are valuable, likely to be taken up on quite a large scale, and a, a great deal of human suffering is going to be reduced as a result, um, let's proceed even though there is a slight risk that this particular technology will be used for hostile purposes. Um, if we shut down everything that might be used for hostile purposes, I doubt there will be any technology ever in the world. This, this piece of paper is a technology uh, for printing ink onto, amongst other things, but it's also a technology that I could um, ignite and then use to start a large fire. Um, you, you really do have to ask whether there is a genuine dilemma as to whether there's doubt about the risks and benefits being weighed in the balance. Most of the time, a lot of the time, um, you know, research should proceed because most of the time there's a good news story expected or, or, or actually arriving at the end of it. Um, an interesting example came up a couple of years ago in the Netherlands, not in a military laboratory, but uh, in a highly secure, that is highly safe um, uh, microbiology laboratory that involved um, deliberately causing genetic mutation of the H5N1 influenza virus, the bird flu, um, deliberately causing, um, through an experimental process of, of genetic engineering, a, the production of a version of that virus, which unlike the current one in nature, is transmissible between mammals. Translation, transmissible between humans, a new pandemic influenza virus very important to keep that all secure and tied up. And a huge debate, the biggest that's ever been had about the risks and benefits of research on pathogenic microorganisms. That, that debate was precisely on, on this question. Should this kind of research happen at all? Is it the kind of research which is simply too dangerous to be done? 
Or does even that kind of research still promise sufficient benefit down the track in terms of public health that we should press on despite the risks? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just a, a side, maybe throwaway comment, but it's not entirely black and white. And, and part of the way you solve this is through licensing and particularly through export control. Um, you know, if a company develops a carmative or, or some new procedure that's developed with some new material, the point I always make when you're talking about CBRN, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, is it always depends on actually who it is who owns it. It's not the chemical or the material itself. It depends upon the user. So for example, if we develop a wonder new drug or something that has potential harmful side effects, there's a very big difference between Imperial College applying to have a large quantity on its campus in its facility and Mr. O. B. Laden, care of Abbottabad, Pakistan, who would like to have some of these in his local home. Right? I make an extreme point, I take it to the nth degree, but you see where I'm coming from, which is you establish a licensing arrangement and an export control regime, therefore people who want to have this material have to apply in advance to get it and jump through a series of hoops of particularly building security and facility but also end using in terms of what they're going to be using it for. You've got them going because Christy wants to come back on that. <laughs> <laughs> export controls as we know it will not work in the biological weapons space and uh, although I have a particular allergy to the term weapons of mass destruction and WMD, I become even more <coughs> irritated by CBRN. <laughs> um, biological agents are everywhere except for smallpox virus. And increasingly, you can make them from scratch using chemical building blocks. So the idea that you could control biological quantities that are minute and ubiquitous in the way that you can control um, chemical precursors or fissile materials um, is, is, in my view, not plausible. The, the challenge is one of intangible technology transfer now. Not about shipments of samples of bacteria from Imperial College to Texas A&M University or something like that. It's about having the technology to create a particular microorganism with particular genetic characteristics through chemical synthesis. There is no shipment involved. And you could call that sort of thing export, but the tools we currently have for controlling the chemical and the nuclear are not, in my view, going to work in the biological realm. So beware. <laughs> Since Christian already mentioned Malcolm Dando, I'll also mention him because it, some of the work that he's been doing at Bradford with his team might be interesting on this question. They've been doing some work on training life scientists effectively to recognise what an important role they play in terms of security. And I know they've been doing, you, going back to gentlemen before, I know they've been working with, in, with some universities in Pakistan, for example. It's essentially raising awareness amongst life scientists that there are security implications to the kind of work they're doing. And one of the kind of hair-raising things that they found in that project is very often microbiologists and, and other life scientists working with some of this stuff have never even thought about the potential security <coughs> implications of, of what they're doing. So look up Malcolm Dando again at Bradford for some of the work he's been doing on that. Right, let's take another round of questions. I know there was one here. Two here. Two. Okay, we'll, we'll take this one and this one first. And gentleman's blue jumper. Hi. Um, 
This might come across as a bit naive. Uh, oh, my name is Nicholas. I'm a former student there in the project. Um, you started off by talking about kind of hard realism uh, in kind of international diplomacy. Uh, I'm, I'm aware that a lot of the states who, are, who we're treating as a policeman, including our own, are the ones particularly who have the history of using these agents, uh, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's dropping nuclear bombs, whether it's torturing and all this kind of stuff. And, and clearly, they've been the ones empowered to set up these standards. But I want to know what has been the forces that has caused them to to uh, accede to these treaties, and how what other kind of forces apart from uh, you know how strong Russia is against Britain or whatever that we can use to try and create stronger treaties. And from that in particular, I'd like to know about the domestic situation because I am a student and I do go out and protest. And I've uh, been in Bologna recently as well, and there was some really ambitious use of, of chemical weapons against students and you know, capsaicin stuff and so on. What can we do to defend ourselves? And as medics, how can we inform ourselves about how to respond to these? Right, the lady at the front. Thank you. Priscilla Wilson, University College London. Uh, do you think that a let out to all these clauses on research is the argument that we must research all these weapons so that we can find ways to treat them and prevent them? And therefore, we've got to keep them out of stock or stocks of them. And would you support that argument? Okay, great. Yeah, on, on the first one, yeah, obviously I take the point. Um, and, and I suppose one there is there's always the charge of hypocrisy, you know. And like I said, I my more on the nuclear issue, and we get this all the time uh, when we're discussing P5 nuclear weapons. Why can't other countries have nuclear weapons when the US, China, Russia, France, and the United Kingdom have them, and then suddenly sign the treaty saying, right, no one else should have them? Um, I appreciate the point. Um, and the, the theory is that the ones that have them gradually negotiate them away in exchange for the ones that not having them don't acquire them in the first place, which is a theory we've been in 40 years now having those kinds of debates and I can talk to you a long time on seeing me afterwards. I suppose the point I would make, it's a very generic one, it doesn't answer your question sufficiently at all, which is often the countries that have gone furthest down the route are more aware of the dangers. And therefore, yes, there is a certain hypocrisy of you've developed all numbers of biological agents, why are you now turning around to the rest of the world and saying you can't have them? Well, actually, there's probably more expertise in the country that, that do have them than the ones that think these are good things that they should to acquire too as a symbol and a status and everything else. So I, I appreciate the hypocrisy, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily end the argument. Sorry, because you, you were saying, you know, well, what are we going to do about Syria because Obama had already drawn these lines? Well, why Obama? You know, why not the UN? Mm -hmm. Why not? You know, some international organisation. I know that's a naive question. Yeah, no, the simple question is because the United States is the only country really with the capacity to do so. Uh, you know, we recognise within a lot of treaties, including the UN, but the fact that five countries are permanent members of the Security Council and no one else is, that there are power differentials between states who have military capabilities to achieve some things and others can't. And historically, it's changing, it's beginning to change with, with Russia wanting to be more active and China being able to be more active. But historically, over the last 30 to 40 years, there's only essentially been three countries in the world with the capacity to deploy military force globally. One is the UK, one is France, and overwhelmingly is the United States. And therefore, when you have the capability to do something, 
obviously the debate shifts to whether you should or not. And that's why the United States always finds itself in these debates, whether it's should we go into Bosnia because there's human rights abuses, should we go into Afghanistan after this, should we go into Iraq, should we go into Libya. If you have the capability to do so, obviously you then have that discussion, which you don't have in Belgium. There's no discussion of should we go into Syria. They don't have the capacity to make a difference if they did. So it's not a naive question at all, but that's, that's probably the answer I'd, I'd come back with. On the domestic use, I, yes, I mean, I, I can't say I find myself protesting on the streets a lot, but I've, I've obviously seen a lot of pictures and a lot of use, and it does concern me that we are drifting in an unnecessarily authoritarian direction. Um, if people want to protest on the streets, I don't necessarily see, unless they are literally engaged in rioting, uh, whether we want to go down the route of, of losing chlorine gas or, or not chlorine gas, forgive me, uh, tear gas to, to control. That would be quite a change. Um, <laughs> Having said that, you know, and, and obviously Chris put up the slides, you know, that's a different question if you're in Syria or if you're in China, where domestic protests are seen very differently because it's, you know, the one-party system seems to be challenging the government in its entirety rather than, you know, as a point of principle rather than the question of a particular policy. So I mean, my personal view is I don't think these things are entirely necessary. There are other kinds of ways you can deal with sufficient policing and so forth, and we probably shouldn't be going down that route if we want to set a principle to other countries. There's lots of areas where we struggle to set a principle to other countries. This is one where we certainly could. So, so let's do so. Why are we? Why are we? My gut would tell me price. It's probably cheaper than to employ a large anti riot protest control force for London to deal with large protests on austerity and everything else. But actually, these things are quite effective and they're cost effective. And therefore, principles cost money. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's then this trade off. So, again, a depressing answer, but that's one that, that is a suitable answer. Great, thank you. Uh, I'll address this, the second point first, if I could. Uh, uh, an, an excellent point. Um, uh, hold on to stocks of pathogenic microorganisms um, because it's very important to, to do research on them so as to learn how better to defend against them. Yes, absolutely. Um, and for the most part, that is what happens and is what ought to happen. We absolutely should be conducting research on, for example, what makes a particular bacterium become, or could make it, that bacterium become resistant to a particular class of antibiotic. Let us, let us try and get ahead of the curve and anticipate genetic mutation and let's ensure that the antibiotics that we do have um, uh, are still working. Let's constantly keep an eye on the ability of our pharmaceutical resources um, to be effective against um, the way in which um, germs mutate naturally. Yet the research absolutely should carry on. Um, ironically, a lot of the security mechanisms that surround those germs that are considered most hazardous and of, and of biological weapons concern, those security mechanisms often in this country and in the United States make the conduct of that research more difficult to do more expensive to do. It's, it's just generally less attractive to do that kind of research if, if you're having to undergo quite intrusive um, background checks on your criminal history, your financial history, your, your, um, your, your psychological profile. Quite intrusive tests are carried out and some people might want, not want to be in that kind of uh, environment. And it, it, there are some indications in the United States that the, the policing of research on certain microorganisms is driving scientists away, and that's, that's potentially bad for public health in the long run. And yet weighing against that is, is, is the possibility 
that, that a researcher might misuse his or her access to materials and technologies. And, and it's, it's, it's exactly what I talk about in my next book, Biosecurity Dilemmas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it is a genuine dilemma at times. I think the default rule is, as you suggest, do the research. Because overwhelmingly, it is intended for good ends, and every now and again, a good end does in fact result. One wild card on that, though, is should we continue doing research on variola major, the virus that causes smallpox? It was eradicated from nature. Why not just destroy all stocks of smallpox virus and be done with it? That has yet to happen, and it's been waiting to happen for 35 years. So whether or not we should do research on that particular virus, well, I think that is genuinely debatable. I, I guess I fall on the side of let's destroy it and, and, and be done with it. But there are plenty of people who, who support and disagree with that view. On the first question, um, what should you do? Um, I think as medics, you need to know, and you're entitled to know, which riot control agents your nearby government has in its, for want of a better word, arsenal, so that you, your staff are, so that you and your colleagues are sufficiently trained and you have whatever antidotes and other treatments are necessary if someone has a particularly adverse reaction to a particular riot control agent. You are entitled to know what exactly they, uh, they have in their arsenal. Now the British government, and look, almost as a matter of principle, I try not to heap too much praise on governments, but the British government is on this issue of non-lethal chemical agents is, is perhaps more on the side of the angels than many other states. And the British government has repeatedly said publicly that it believes that there should be a norm that discourages the use of chemicals that are more toxic than tear gas, even for law enforcement purposes, let alone uh, warfare. So the British government position is nothing more toxic than tear gas, please. We're British. <laughs> and that, that really means that, okay, the nearby, if, if a protest took place out there, then the nearest hospitals would be entitled to know that, well, yeah, we could have some adverse reactions to tear gas um, coming along and we need to know how to deal, that, deal with that. It is cause of concern, though, and I doubt that this would be the case in, in sunny Britain, but it did happen in Russia, it's cause for concern if the government does not tell medical professionals what it has in its arsenal. Part of the reason why 100 people who were dragged outside that Moscow theatre in 2002 died of exposure, overexposure to that fentanyl, is because the medics didn't know what they were dealing with, and the Russians did not disclose to those medics which chemical they had used, possibly because it would have amounted to a confession that they had breached the chemical weapons convention. So you're entitled to know what chemicals will be used against students in the streets, and in this country, you're entitled to expect that although your government can make you cry, it can't knock you unconscious. <laughs> yes, sure. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good point. This is maybe taking it off at a, at a bit of a tangent, but um, one of a good friend of mine who I encourage you to look at her work, Sophie Wilborg, who's a PhD at the University of Cambridge, is doing some excellent work on looking at the ethical problems that medical professionals face in protest kind of situations, particularly in authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm. Because you find, particularly in Egypt, which I think is the focus of her research, medical professionals will obviously treat people, given the Hippocratic Oath, and are then suddenly deemed to be participants in a much broader conflict that they haven't necessarily considered. Because suddenly the government has decided that the medical professionals themselves are essentially 
protesters and taking part in some kind of color, color revolution. So it's an interesting dimension I thought mentioned. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think we probably have time for one more question. No, that's probably going to leave some people disappointed, but maybe the speakers will be willing to speak to you in the break. I'm sorry, sir, I'm not going to go to you because you've already had one. Oh, just reflect on the comment on the bugs. Okay, if it's very quickly. The thing about um, bugs and keeping those dangerous bugs for future research or protection is very important because there is no such thing as zero risk. Extinction is not possible. They may reemerge, and things like smallpox are kept for future defense purposes, very little research, and that's when hardly any research being carried out. I was in Birmingham in the smallpox actually outbreak occurred there, delivery got shut down and we were involved in that. And so that occurs. The second one which you mentioned on uh, the sort of research on the flu bugs and H1N1. A lot of scientists are justifying it, saying the potential for that H1N1, so hemodynamic if that mutation occurs, that's a higher risk to mass population like the Spanish flu. So one's going to consider potential risks and what's going to happen. Great, so we'll have the last question here at the front, please. And please make it brief. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of appropriately, my question is more about how we move forward in terms of the discussion and then hopefully potentially ending the discussion if we can um, put the issue to bed. Um, you mentioned there's a lot of ambiguity in terms of the conventions thus far which enable um, countries like the US to carry on their practice of um, giving lethal injections in appropriate cases, etc, etc. And has there been any discussion um, between the states that have signed up to these conventions about this ambiguity to kind of sort it out? Because presumably that's one of the ways in which we can move forward with the whole discussion and clearing up that ambiguity and in terms of other conventions, will there be any others, or well not others, but discussing any ambiguities present and then moving forward um, in terms of the approach we take and the, the states that aren't within the conventions. Great, and I, I'm going to give that to Christian and then I'm going to broaden that out and say if Timothy's got anything he wants to say about ways forward by way of ending the session. Well, um, these discussions do go on in the background all the time amongst um, all those intrepid uh, diplomats. And um, for better or for worse, um, every time the members of these conventions meet, um, their final report must be a consensus statement. Um, and oftentimes things are regularly on the agenda and being talked about, and yet constantly unresolved. It's really a question of, um, of maintaining the political pressure to keep issues on the agenda. The, the UK government has become more active, likewise the Swiss, but the, um, the, the Russian government is not keen to resolve the ambiguity about that provision in the Chemical Weapons Convention, precisely because it envisages itself doing the kinds of operations that perhaps fall in the grey area between law enforcement and methods of warfare. The Americans are highly resistant to a verification of compliance regime for the Biological Weapons Convention, and they do not want Russian and other scientists inspecting dugway proving ground to look at what they're up to. If you're asking for policy recommendations, I think on the chemical weapons front, I think the British position is a good one. States should not aspire to have 
the capability to use chemicals any more toxic than tear gas for any purpose. And secondly, states should not conduct outdoor dissemination experiments with regard to biodefence. Excellent. Thank you very much. So the last word to, to Timothy. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable starting point for a discussion. Uh, I think the problem... <laughs> this is the end, I'm afraid. <laughs> spending too much time in, in, in international security circles, but this is always a historic tension whenever you negotiate any treaty. You know, I can give you one of two things along the spectrum. I can give you a treaty that has a huge number of members, that has great breadth, and not a lot of substance. Or I can give you an agreement that has a lot of substance, but it won't have a lot of breadth, because there'll be countries that decide they don't want to take part. And then the question is, you will probably never get an agreement that has total breadth and total substance. The question is, where along that line do you want to be? I think if we start having to talk about how trying to establish certain principles and then everybody moves along incrementally and gradually, it's probably better to have everybody in at a lesser threshold and over time you try to institutionalize the principle than to say, like, these 50 states have said this is exactly what we're going to do 100%, but three quarters of the world isn't with us. The whole point of the process is to try to bring everyone along with you, even if it's a very slow process. So by and large, it's probably better to have more breadth and less depth because over time we're trying to bring about things. Great, well that's an excellent way to finish that. I just hope you'll join me in thanking both speakers for two excellent talks and for really dealing with your questions in a really full and hopefully informative way. I'd like to thank you all for coming and for your questions. Now that we've got coffee before the final session of the day, so please go and get that somewhere out there. And thank you all for coming. What's <laughs> the